Those of you who read chapter 6, how would you describe Israel's attitude? (laughs) Not good, okay? Whiners, complainers, grumbling, and basically crybabies. If you have the story with you, open to page 71. I highlighted all the grumbling sections in blue. And there's a lot of blue in this chapter. Page 71 at the bottom says, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Page 72 then said they were, the Israelites started wailing about the manna. Moses heard every family wailing at the entrance of their tents. They kept wailing, give us meat to eat. Page 73 at the top, they wailed before him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Page 75, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are after the spies go into the into the land. Uh, Page 76, they wept aloud, they grumbled, and only if we died in Egypt. The whole assembly talked about stoning Moses, about the middle of page 77, about the bottom, says the community grumbled, the complaints, the grumbling Israelites, grumbled, grumble, complain. Israel complains constantly, but they're not the only ones. Moses complains to God, He's fed up with these people. Aram and Miriam complain about Moses because he married a Cushite woman, probably because she's a different skin color. And even God complains about Israel. He's ready to annihilate these people and start over. So Israel's angry. Moses is angry. God gets angry. This is the meltdown chapter. There's an old point, four-point sermon a bunch of preachers used to preach years ago. It says they fried, they spied, they cried, and they died. Now, they're under stress, and it's a hard time. Shortages of food and water, uncertainty. Hardships bring the best out of people or the worst out of people. This generation combines two things that are seemingly incompatible, seemingly contradictory, and the two things that should not be together are God's graciousness and Israel's grumbling. God's mighty acts of power on the behalf of his people and they're unbelievably persistent, complaining, and doubt. It's really mind-boggling. Now, they've witnessed... Signs and wonders in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, a GPS in the form of a cloud and a fire. They got water out of a rock, supernatural manna, and then quail, 10 guidelines for life. You would think by now their faith would be at a pretty high level. And I don't know about you, but when I read this, I thought, how could they be so stupid? They're morons. I think the narrator wants us to think that. He wants us to judge them because it's kind of like walking into a room and seeing a painting on the wall and saying to yourself, man, that's an ugly painting. And then you get closer, you realize it's not a painting, it's a mirror. He, want, he wants us to criticize them and ask the question, are we really much different than they are? When we complain, essentially we're saying, yeah, God, I know I'm made in your image, and I know you love me, and you call me to be your own, and yeah, because of Jesus, I've been freed from sin and death, and I'm forgiven and adopted and redeemed, so I'm going to be with God for all eternity. Yeah, I'm a part of this community of believers where I'm loved and where I can experience your grace and truth and power, and yeah, I've been given the Holy Spirit and given gifts so I can contribute and partake in the cosmic story of God, but if only I had a bigger house, if only I had a better job, if only I didn't feel so crummy, if only you fill in the blank. Then I'd be happy. Then I'd be grateful. Then I'd be content. Our hearts are just as silly. We're just as quick to forget God's blessing and and forget God's power. God's power and grace and our grumbling, they just don't belong together. Even though Israel was out of slavery, they were still slaves. They were still slaves to their circumstances, slaves to their appetites and desires. They were slaves to their worries and fears. They still had the mindset of slavery. Now, I'm going to show a map up here. This is actually this very same map you have on the front of your book, the story. And you can see, obviously, down here, Egypt, Nile River, and all that. 
And when they get out of Egypt, you can see up to Jerusalem where the promised land is in there. It's really not that far. In fact, on your outline, the distance from where they are to where they want to go is less than 200 miles. Now, that's like nothing. That's like from Mount Pulaski to the Wisconsin border, 200 miles from Mount Pulaski to the promised land. (coughs) Yeah, the fastest way to get to the promised land is by this international trade route right along the river. It's called the Way of the Philistines. It goes along the Great, not the river, along the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and it's probably scenic. It's widely traveled, and it's really not a tough trip at all. But God doesn't take them that way. There's another route that cuts right through the Sinai Peninsula, and it's a little bit out of the way, but that journey is very doable as well, and God doesn't take them by that route either. Instead, God takes them south into the desert to a place called Mount Sinai, down at the tip of the peninsula there, and they camp out there for about a year, and they learn laws, and they're given instructions about how to live, they're given instructions for the tabernacle, spend a year there, it's a pretty significant pit stop. So what should have been a two-week journey is now a year. Deuteronomy 1.2 tells us that from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, which is on the border of the promised land there, is an 11-day journey. So after a year, finally it's time to leave. So they're probably all excited. It's time to go. Only 11 days to the promised land, less than two weeks. But they don't make it in two weeks. Here's another thing we're going to find out about God. God is not a big fan of the direct route. God seldom takes the easy or the direct route. Are you like me when, it, when you travel? For me, it's competition. You're competing against the clock. Now, in the old days, before we had GPS, uh, I always wanted to average 60 miles per hour, including stops. So a 600-mile trip should be done in 10 hours. And if we get behind and the kids have to make a restroom stop, too bad. we got to get there and beat the clock. Now, with a GPS, it tells me I should get from point A to point B in so much time, and I think, I can beat that. And it's all about beating it, the competition. Now, can you imagine Moses, 11 days? I could do it in 10. How long does it take them to get to the promised land? 40 years, 39 more years after, after Sinai. 39 years later, they finally make it, which should have taken two weeks. And these 40 years are called the time of the wilderness wanderings, wandering, just God leading them around. And I'm going to define wandering today as living in the space between where I started where I want to be. They started in Egypt, and we're looking forward to the promised land and the abundance. That's where they want to be. But in between is the wilderness. And God does a lot of work of his work in us while we're traveling in this in-between time. And I'm guessing many of you are maybe living in that space right now between where you started and where you want to be, between maybe graduating and getting a real job and living in the space between dating and getting married or between diagnosis and remission or going into debt and getting out of debt or between saying goodbye to a loved one and being reunited with them in the, in the next life. And you feel like you're in the wilderness at times, just trudging along, maybe even spinning your wheels. Behind them was Egypt. They had it rough, but at least in Egypt, they had three hots and a cot. And they were, there were several times they wanted to go back to Egypt because it's just tough to be wandering and it gets old. Ahead of them was the promised land with the lush and all the blessing. But in between, ah, this transition, they're stuck, stuck in the desert. But transitions are an opportunity to reorient. Most of us, we're not about the journey. We're about the destination. We don't like the journey. What's the most commonly asked question on a trip? Are we there yet? Okay. We want to get to the destination. We used to cross Iowa from Wisconsin to Nebraska and we already know that Wisconsin is God's country and Nebraska is not, but anyway, we used to live there. So our thinking was, when we cross 
Nebraska to Wisconsin or vice versa. All Iowa was good for was crossing. <laughs> Our youth minister's from Iowa, so it's better than just crossing. But anyway, we hated Iowa when I was a kid. It was flat and boring. It took forever. Family is seven in one car without air conditioning. So what do you do while you're in this Iowa wilderness for hours and hours? And it was a test. We couldn't wait to get to the destination, to get to Wisconsin or Nebraska. Our tendency is to focus on where we're going and eliminate as much time as possible between where we were and where we want to go. How fast can we get to our destination? How fast until I can retire? How much longer before I graduate or before I get married? We're in a hurry. God's not. Ellen says I'm like the roadrunner. Beep, beep. Okay? I just want to move. I'm so fast. On our first big vacation together, now I'm not counting our honeymoon because honeymoons, you don't act normal. You're not yourself. You're polite. So our first big vacation, first big vacation, you, know, you, you are who you are. So two weeks, two summers ago, we were out west, and I found out that Ellen on vacation likes to take it easy, sleep in, and enjoy the journey. I, on the other hand, want to get up at five and get going. Why? So we get there. Ellen asked, what are you going to do when we get there? Well, we'll check into the motel, rest and take it easy and slow down. So you're going to hurry so you can slow down. Ellen's been good for me. <laughs> but that's the way we are. We, we don't like the journey. Most of us tend to be more goal-oriented. You know, we want to get to the destination. I remember my mom saying, Mark, you're going to wish your life away. Just wish your life away. Can't wait till Christmas. Can't wait till for my birthday. Can't wait till I graduate. Can't wait till I get married. Can't wait till I have kids. Can't wait till I retire. Life is gone. As you read the story, you're going to find that God is seldom in a hurry. Abraham is going to be the father of a great nation. It took him 100 years to have a child. When Joseph was sold into slavery, it was 13 years before he was exonerated and spent many of those years in jail. When Israel was in misery in Egypt, 400 years in bondage before God finally delivered them. Why so long? Moses, 40 years in the desert before he finally sees the burning bush. David was anointed king, and then 20 years later becomes the king. God's just not in a hurry. Why? Why do I have to be in this limbo state, this wilderness for so long? I'm going to give you two reasons for Israel's wilderness state. Page 77 in the middle is from Numbers 14. It says, The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth... Not one of those who saw my glory in the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. One reason they're stuck in the desert for 40 years is God had had enough. They were so belligerent that he wasn't going to let them into the promised land. So they're going to wander for 40 years so that this generation would die off because of their own sin. And sometimes when you end up in a bad spot or a wilderness, it's your own doing. Now, not always, of course, but sometimes that's the way it is. The God you see in this chapter is a God that a lot of people don't like. This is a God who holds us responsible for our actions, holds us accountable. When people complain in our culture, it often works. The complainer often gets what, they, what he wants. Studies have shown that it works. If you want to get ahead, complain. It works. The squeaky wheel actually does get the grease. And if you want to get a raise, complain. And when we complain to God, we want him to respond the same way, the way we want him to respond. We want God to say, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me help you out. That's what we want him to say, but he doesn't. Sometimes he gets, he gets mad. Sometimes in the church, 
In our efforts to have peace and have everybody love each other, we tend to reward dysfunction. When people complain, we jump. Oh, we don't want to make anybody unhappy. We do it in families. Alcoholic behavior is not only tolerated, it's enabled. In many organizations, inappropriate behavior is the most effective way to get things done. The way to get your way is to throw a tantrum, complain. Everyone else will back off and let you get your way. That's how dysfunctional families, dysfunctional organizations, and churches operate. Let the most immature people control things. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't allow disturbed, immature, dysfunctional people in the church. I mean, you let me in here. But we shouldn't allow these people to disrupt or control things. In Moses' case, the whole group is dysfunctional. They're sick, they're selfish, they're whiny. And God says, that's enough. I've been patient, but I'm not going to coddle them anymore. They are not going to the promised land. He's going to wait for this generation to die off. So the first reason you may be going through a wilderness, you're not ready for the destination, for the next step. Israel was not ready for the promised land. God waited for the next generation so they'd have a new orientation, a new attitude of faith and courage. So while the old generation dies, the next generation is being trained and reoriented. We tend to just want to get through the wilderness to time. We just want to reach our goal. We want to get through Iowa to the promised land. But it's in Iowa where God does some of his best work. God is more concerned about who you're becoming than where you're going. In other words, his priorities are different than ours. We're all about the destination. He's all about our character and what we're becoming. So God is reorienting us. Sometimes you need the wilderness. Some of you who are older, you remember starting out struggling financially. You didn't have a lot. And many of you who are older will say, those years of struggle were good for me. You know, they shaped us and they they taught us some things. The wilderness was good for me. Now, at the core of complaining is, of course, unbelief and lack of faith here. God won't take care of us. On page 72, the first paragraph, Numbers 11, I'm taking this one from the message, so it'll be a little different, but I like this paraphrase. The riffraff among the people had a craving, and soon they had the people of Israel whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and got it free, to say nothing of the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, but nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. Wah, 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 okay? God keeps providing for them, and they keep whining. We're tired of this bread, okay? We ate fish that was free, and melons, and onions, and garlic. Really? You were slaves in Egypt, you idiots. You make Egypt sound like a wedding reception. We had all the food we wanted, and it was free. No, you were slaves. It was awful. Have you forgotten what it's like? See, people who complain do this. They see every situation is better than the one they're in. Everybody's better off than me. Or... Good old days. I remember the good old days. Things were a bit, really? I had an elder in one church. He just said, they're old days. They weren't good old days. Complainers see better days are either in the past or the future or someone else has got them. But not me. Not now. Notice it's the riffraff that are among the people, and they soon have all the people complaining. Complaining is contagious. All it takes is a few, one family member, one or two church members, one co-worker spreads like an infection and it's toxic. And you see it in this chapter. It goes from the riffraff to the people to Moses to Miriam and Aaron and, and finally to God. And they're all angry. Studies have been done about how this affects relationships with couples. One of the most accurate ways of telling if a couple will stay together is the amount of complaining. If the complaining is at like 5% or less, you know, five complaints for every 100 interactions, your marriage has a great chance. If it gets up to be 10 or more, it's one of the most reliable factors that you won't make it. This is a relational killer. 
And it kills relationships in this chapter. Aaron and Miriam complain against Moses. Miriam is Moses' sister that saved his life when he was a baby, for goodness sakes. And Aaron is his right-hand man. And they start all fighting. The people one time got so upset they want to stone and kill Moses. On page 72, Moses wants to throw in the towel. He complains to God, and even God gets angry. Page 72 says, Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. Notice everybody's mad. And Moses asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them into my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give me meat to eat. Did I give birth to these people? God, why should I have to deal with their dirty diapers? And God says, you want meat? Page 72 at the bottom. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. When you will eat meat. Lord heard, and when you wail, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, or ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Ellen and I, I think before we got married, we did this so we could look good for the wedding. We went on a cabbage soup diet for a week. Cabbage soup was the main course for every meal for seven days. And uh, actually, the first time, it isn't horrible. It's not great, but it's not bad. By the third or fourth meal, it is just gross. And literally, I could have gagged on it. I think I lasted a few days. Ellen did the whole thing. I couldn't do it all. If you eat the same thing for two or three days or more, it's just bad. I mean, they're going to be on this no-carb, all-meat diet for 30 days. Why is God doing that? Eh, punish them, yeah. But he's teaching them too. I think he's teaching them. It could be worse. Manna, manna, manna. Well, okay, try this. Try quail, quail, quail. See how you like that. God's given them perspective. I don't care what situation you're in today. It could be worse. Repeat those words with me. It God says, you think you got it bad? Here, try meat for a month. Eventually, he sends snakes to bite them, so it can always get worse. In 1958, an airplane accidentally dropped some of its cargo on a Mars Bluff, South Carolina family's vegetable garden and house. It did extensive damage to their house and four other houses and to the church. Now, that's a bad day. Something just drops out of the air onto your garden, does some damage to your house. Why me, God? Why that happened to me? Well, the airplane was a B-47E, and the cargo that it accidentally dropped was a nuclear bomb that did not excite. It could have been worse. A whole lot worse. Life is a lot more uncertain than we want to realize. It, it can always be worse. Next time you go to your job and it's a drudgery and it's not very good pay, you say, it could be worse. Next time you step, up, step out of the shower and make the mistake of looking yourself in the mirror, <laughs> boy, if I only had better metabolism, if I only had his or her body, if I was only 20 years young, you, know, you just say, it could be worse. Tomorrow morning when you wake up and look at your spouse, don't say it. <laughs> But perspective. A mother and her seven-year-old were on a flight, and the boy was throwing a fit because they weren't sitting by the window. And the guy at the window had his headphones on, and he wasn't going to move. So she was having a fit the whole flight long, and the mother was saying, but we're going to Disney. It's going to be great when we get there. And she's telling about the rides and the fun they would have, and he's still throwing a fit. You know, we're on the way to the Magic Kingdom, but we don't have a window seat. Sound familiar? We're on the way to heaven, but we want a window seat. And we throw a fit. 
Dad's in a ball game. His kid strikes out. Dad yells at him. Keep your eye on the ball. And then he yells at the umpire. You're blind. How about some perspective? Your son is healthy. He's smart. You're one of the 8% of the people on the planet that can drive a car and attend a game like this. Quit whining like a little girl. Stop it. Our people that go to Uganda next month, I guarantee you will come back with some perspective. A new look at life in America. One group went to a mission trip like that, and they were in a worship service, and the leader asked if there's any favorite songs they'd like to have sung. And a lady from the back raises her hand, and she has no fingers, just a stump. No lips, no nose, no ears, all lost to leprosy. And she raised her hand and says, Can we sing Count Your Many Blessings? Come to Vonderly Tuesday night. I dare you to complain about your life. It could be worse. How will we respond going through this transition? If you're through in a transition wilderness time. See, whining is the opposite of worship. Worship is thankful for what God has given. Whining is complaining for what God has not given. When my first wife got cancer, I was amazed. Didn't know quite what to expect, but I was amazed how her worship barometer went through the roof. She was so thankful for life and for the church and for the kids and grandkids and for family and for Jesus. See, when you get cancer, you get perspective. Numbers 4.11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I performed among them? God asked, what do I have to do? For complainers, anything God asks of me is too much and whatever God does do for me is not enough. In spite of all that God had done for them, it's not enough. And God says, what do I do? I wanted to retire next year. My portfolio went down 30%. Wah, wah, wah. Really? We need perspective. I heard this past week about a farmer, and it wasn't one of ours, complaining that the harvest was going to take so long because there's so much corn. (laughs) Really? In the stock market crash a few years ago, a guy told me, and he was moaning, he lost a half a million dollars. And I remember thinking, I wish I had that problem. You know? God is holding up the walls to the Red Sea, allowing us to pass through. He's freeing us and saving us and providing us, and we're annoyed because we have mud between our toes. Whining when we really should be worshiping. Now, I don't want to make light of your wilderness because the wilderness is never easy. There's challenges, very real challenges, very real time of testing. It's tough. The Israelites did not have it easy. But God is reorienting these people and bringing about a new perspective. Israel needs two freedoms. We talked about this before. Freedom from Egypt, but also freedom from slavery to their own passions and fears and worries. That's why they don't go straight to the promised land. That's why they had to go through wilderness training to reorient their lives. God knew that where they were going was not as important as who they were becoming. God knew having, a land, knew having a land flowing with milk and honey is not as important as having a heart flowing with faith and courage. And that's why God leads them into the wilderness because it's one of the best places to learn and to grow and to get liberated from the things that enslave us. And it works. This generation dies, the next generation grows up in the wilderness and they become confident in God's power and in faith they conquer the promised land. That's next week's chapter. If you read through this, this whole book, this story, you will see that some of God's most important servants like Moses, David, Elijah, and even Jesus spent a lot of time in the wilderness. If you feel like you're in some desert times and dry times and hard times right now, probably God's preparing you for something. And there's a reason for it. Do you want to be a stronger person or a more sensitive person? 
you want to be wiser or deeper, it happens in the wilderness training and through those difficult times. We hate it. We want the destination. God wants the journey. We say, Lord, make me happy today and now. Make me loving and make me better and make me good and make me strong. I'm just going to lie here, Lord, and you just zap me. And God says, I don't zap anyone into liberation. You don't get zapped into character and greatness. God says, I invite you into a long, hard process. At the end of the chapter, Moses dies, one of the two or three greatest men in the Bible. Bottom of page 88 says, Since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these signs and miracles, wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials in his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Next week, we'll have the battle begin as they finally enter the promised land. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the promises of a better land. Thank you for goals and destinations. But help us to see the value of the journey, the times of transition, the wilderness, and the the times of testing. Help us to have a perspective that will lead us to worship because we know that you are with us and you, you will provide for us. It's hard, Lord. You know what this life can be like, and it is hard. But we also know that you are God. And you're in the process of saving us and molding us and shaping us. Thank you. Amen.